Welcome to The Brain Trust, a physician's guide to diagnosing Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, brought to you from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians. I'm Dr. Kate Rowland, family physician, member of the IAFP, and faculty at Rush University. Funding for this podcast series was provided by a grant from the Illinois Department of Public Health. The goal of The Brain Trust and this podcast series is to educate and empower the primary care clinician in the early detection, diagnosis, and management of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. Clinical resources, free CME, and other educational materials are available online at thebraintrustproject.com. CME credit is available for each podcast. The Illinois Academy of Family Physicians is accredited by the Accreditation Council of Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Information on how to receive credit can be found on the Brain Trust Project website. Thank you for joining us as we empower each other and provide training on the early detection of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. And now, today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast. Today, I have a special guest with me who is joining me at SIU all the way from California, who would be talking with me today about early signs and symptoms of neurocognitive disorder, as well as who would help us in describing the degenerative cognitive syndromes, which can manifest with behavioral changes. My host today is Dr. Dennis File. She is the Director of Geriatric Psychiatry Training and Education at Greater Los Angeles VA Healthcare System. She is also Health Science Clinical Professor at UCLA and the Program Director of UCLA Geriatric Psychiatry Fellowship at David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Dr. Fahl actually received her medical degree from McKill University in 1995 and has been in practice for 24 years. She's bilingual in French and English and specializes in dementia diagnosis and treatment and conducts research on health services and health behavior. Let's welcome Dr. Fahl. Dr. Fahl, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. It's great to be virtually in Illinois. Rural Midwest is very familiar to me, having uh, grown up in the rural countryside of the Midwest. That is great to hear. Dr. Fahl, Tell us something uh, about working with a primary care provider. Well, that's really much of what I do in my healthcare setting. Actually, we have an integrative clinic with geriatric medicine in which we're able to address all of the behavioral cognitive issues in addition to all of the medical problems. And really, it's difficult to treat and isolate out the cognitive issues from all of the underlying medical problems. And so that's been enriching setting for me over the last 20 years to help me understand the medical side, meaning the primary medical problems, as well as the neurocognitive issues and how they work together in terms of addressing and treating. For my listeners, any tip that you'd like to share, you know, that could improve the communication between primary care providers and between you know, the patients and the caregiver? Right. So that can be complicated by what the healthcare system looks like and how many opportunities there are to work together. But taking advantage of any of those, maybe having a psychiatrist or cognitive specialist or geriatric medicine physician like Dr. Yukesh available to assist you with some of those questions that you may have, I think that can be quite helpful 
I know as a geriatric psychiatrist, I am contacting primary care and geriatric medicine on a daily basis. Could you please give us some examples of how uh, you know, primary care providers uh, can attain greater level of comfort with what they're already doing, you know, helping geriatricians, helping psychiatrists and uh, the other subspecialists? Sure. Maybe it helps to even start with a case that I had just this, this week, which is a complex issue with how we kind of split up our divisions of labor. And in this case, we were able to work together very well, and it helped us understand and treat this patient in a way um, that's quite un- unusual, but I think we often, it's probably more common than we know. So this this is a 75-year-old man, and he came into our memory clinic complaining of quite a number of issues. And he had some word finding. He was feeling like in his brain, he had kind of a traffic jam, but he also had a lot of significant medical problems. And he had a history of of traumatic brain injury. He had untreated obstructive sleep apnea. His primary care physician had attempted to treat that, but the CPAP wasn't working. He also had a new device that he was using that made him claustrophobic related to his PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and he just wasn't sure if it was helping him at all, so he stopped using it. He also had somewhat uncontrolled diabetes. He had a lot of pain that was affecting his ability to kind of process information. He was scheduled for a hip surgery in a few months, but the pain was really getting him down. So just this last week, we saw him in clinic. It had been a follow-up period of about five months. And meanwhile, he actually had a successful left total hip arthroplasty and was feeling much better. His pain was mostly resolved. He also had this kind of severe osteoarthritis and was getting proper treatment for that that was not affecting his mentation. And then for the obstructive sleep apnea, we were really at a bit of a crossroads with that because of his claustrophobia issues related to his PTSD. And so we sent him back to sleep clinic and they actually gave him a mandibular advancement device instead, which was working well for him. And we care so much about that in our cognitive setting because with the lack of oxygen to the brain, you know, there's really an increased risk of dementia. There's also a concern over just general lack of well-being from not getting oxygenation during the night. And then we also referred him for psychotherapy. He'd never received psychotherapy for some of the worst PTSD I've seen. And um, there was some associated depression with that. So his therapist and psychiatrist actually added deloxetine for him. He titrated up on the deloxetine to about 60 milligrams and also was getting some psychotherapy and some support for a lot of these preoccupations that he was having. And so we actually graduated. We were able to graduate him from our memory clinic. This is a relatively rare occurrence, but was a, had a huge impact to see that actually somebody who really was, we were thinking he had at least mild cognitive impairment, if not an emergent dementia, actually his memory issues completely resolved. And so that's kind of why we care so much because of 
the potential for misdiagnosing, giving somebody a bad diagnosis and prognosis, when actually there's all these medical problems that can be treated and can help to really improve their cognition and their well-being. That is an amazing case. Thank you so much for sharing that. And also the case uh, highly illustrates uh, the multifaceted uh, problems that could all lead to a possible decline in cognition in a patient and how as primary care provider, we can coordinate care as well as take care of the small issues that we do not otherwise think of as affecting memory. Things like osteoarthritis where, you know, pain management can affect cognition, obstructive sleep apnea, and, and, and so on. When it comes to primary care providers detecting or sensing changes in cognition, are there any things uh, that we should be looking early on, you know, or some pearls of wisdom that, that uh, you could share with us uh, that would help us take care of these cognitive problems early on? That's a good question. And Dr. Yukesh, you probably see more of this than I do, or at least we see equal equal percentages of this conundrum in our patients. So how do we kind of break that down a bit when we have someone coming into our practice and either we as specialists or primary care providers kind of feel like there's something not quite right, but the family's not aware or the patient is not aware. So that's one scenario. Another one is that the family member comes in and or makes a cold call and basically says, I know there's something going on with my father, my mother, my grandparent, or my my spouse. They're having trouble, you know, with their driving, they're tending to get lost, you know, things are just changing. Sometimes it gets really irritable. Sometimes she maybe makes decisions that I wouldn't make. And this is kind of new. So that's kind of often we'll hear something like that and, and you know, in a conundrum about how to how to address that when it's, you know, a family member reporting it. And then also we we never really know for sure what's what's happening initially when a patient comes in. So maybe we can break that down for our listeners today. And just to make one note of something that we often aren't aware of outside of, you know, our specialties. And that is that part of the disease process in Alzheimer's in particular is that there's a lack of insight. We even have a special name for that, anosognosia. And that is typical a lot of a lot of brain syndromes. And we often think of the patient as being in denial or trying to hide it, that sort of thing. And that can happen. But for the most part, this part of the brain that makes us aware of the disease itself that's happening in our brain is, is sometimes not working well and gets affected by the disease itself. And so that's probably one of the most complicating factors in treating the cognitive disorders. Anything else that you can think of, Dr. Yukesh? There are changes in the, some of the activities of daily living, you know, especially the, the instrumental activities of daily living. And uh, for me, in my practice, I do tend to ask them about uh, their ability to take medications, for example. Sometimes I get notes from the pharmacy saying the patient has not refilled their prescription and it's about time. Oftentimes, uh, there are some subtle changes in their ability to take care of their finances. So their you know, loved one, generally the husband or the wife takes over those responsibilities. Driving has been uh, something that becomes problematic, either having an accident or you know, running over a stop sign, red light, or just pulling over just to think you know, where they are headed. 
even while driving in places you know where, where they are much familiar with there uh, are some of the problems that I see as well. One of the things that I uh, wanted to touch uh, base with you today was uh, with regards to the behavioral disturbances that are associated with dementia. When we talk about dementia, we're always focused primarily on the cognitive aspect. Even in the primary cognitive aspect, we are focused more on the memory, much more than other domains of cognition. Could you please tell us something more about some of the common behavioral disturbances or behavioral changes uh, that can be noticed in dementia? Oh, such a good question in, in terms of how that plays in with the different kind of diagnoses that we might be seeing in a primary care practice. So sometimes even early on, you know, you mentioned some of the, uh, the daily activities that can be affected, but also there can be some associated behavioral changes even early on. And one of the most common ones is apathy or a lack of motivation. And this is seen in pretty much all of the dementias that we'll talk about, Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, Lewy body dementia being the three most common ones. So apathy is something that, you know, where there's just kind of a lack of motivation, lack of initiation, even of motor movements, that can be seen really early on in some of the dementias. And then also there can be some early depression. We see that's pretty typical in Alzheimer's disease. So there can be of depression even a few years, you know, a new depression, sometimes associated anxiety. Irritability can occur, but that's often more in the, you know, we're more into a mild to moderate stage. Again, if it's a different type of dementia, like frontotemporal dementia, we might see irritability and personality change very early on. And then REM behavior disorder and some of these sleep disorders that often fall into the kind of the purview of geriatric medicine and primary care, you're treat, constantly treating one type of sleep disorder or another, those can occur early on too. So in Lewy body dementia, we can see REM behavior disorder in, you know, maybe even 12 to 15 years prior to the onset of the actual Lewy body disorder. We care about those things. We care about getting sleep studies and we it does capture our attention when we're informed about some of these types of changes um, that are would be considered uh, emotional or behavioral. So if we see these changes, you know, what should we do, you know, prior to making a referral or, you know, what are the most common indications for a referral and what role can primary care providers play during those referrals? You know, I think I might actually punt this back to you. What type of brief screener are you using or that you think might be helpful to primary care providers when they have, you know, five to 10 medical problems that they're trying to address, making sure that their diabetes is okay, their blood pressure. These are really key, key issues and actually can affect their cognition by being vascular risk factors. So what you're addressing all of those medical problems that can contribute to what we're seeing here But in addition to that, what kind of a screener or what kind of questions do you tend to ask when you have just five minutes after you cash? It is always a challenge, you know, because we have so many uh, problems that that patient present to us with. I uh, tend to go with their history and see, you know, if there's any family history of Alzheimer's, Parkinsonism, or some dementias in the family. Physical examination-wise, you know, if they have any tremor, if they are falling down, you know, I oftentimes I tend to do a timed up and go test, which is also called tug test, to see you know, if, uh, if, if they have a slow gait. 
And, you know, a neurological examination would be something that, that I would do. Again, I would not be doing all of these tests at the same time. I would do a certain number of tests initially and then have the patient come back for a follow-up at a later date. Once I've done a detailed history and physical examination, if I am in a crunch of time, I tend to use mini-cog, basically, because I would just be asking the questions to a patient to remember three words, ask them to draw a clock, and then, you know, recite those three words back. And uh, it's, it's a very time effective. If I have a longer time period, like, like let's say, for example, if I'm calling a patient back uh, for just memory assessment and I'm not addressing any other issues, there are a few tools that I uh, use. Uh, MOCA is uh, one of those tools, MMSC, slums. And if a patient ha- comes from a diverse background where English is not necessarily their primary language and if we do not have a form in, in their native language, uh, you know, because oftentimes using a translator to do a MOCA is almost impossible, uh, then uh, I use root as. So those are some of the tools that I use uh, for cognitive assessment. Uh, then to assess their function, I uh, tend to use assessment of basic activities of daily living and instrumental activities of daily living. Are those fairly standard things that you see on a regular basis, Dr. Fab? Absolutely. And, you know, the acronyms may or may not be helpful to you. And I'm trying to remember myself um, then because we use them so commonly. But the, the, the MOCA is the Montreal Orientation and Montreal Cognitive Assessment. assessment. That, that is correct. <laughs> yes. And, um, and that, you know, some of those, it's hard to get a hold of those. They do take probably 15 to 20 minutes. But I, I really like your idea of just doing the three words to have them repeat because we get repetition that way. The clock is so helpful. If it's abnormal in any way, that should be a concern. And then the recall, you know, after they complete the clock. So you've got the distraction of the clock and then, you know, to see whether they can recall those. So I agree. If th- if that's no- abnormal for a primary care provider, I would be concerned. Yeah. And to me, you know, I we do hour and a half long batteries. And I feel like that is just a really excellent screener for a primary care provider. If that was something that a primary care provider would want to specialize in a little bit more, then, you know, I think the other ones that you mentioned are um, very, very helpful as well. But that takes away time from the things that we really care about, right? For cognition, it takes the time away from addressing the obstructive sleep of the apnea, for treating the vascular risk factors, for it also maybe a quick screener on depression. We don't want to take away a primary care provider's time from these real key important risk factors for their brain. And so I vote for this short screener. And then you can also, you know, as a primary care provider, you can look up, you can just Google abnormal clocks and and you can get an idea of, you know, what this one might look like or how you, you know, it's fun. So you might actually enjoy looking at the abnormal clocks and seeing how it compares with what you're getting in your practice. Absolutely. And uh, could you please tell us something about the most common causes of dementia? Because, you know, when you're in med school or in our training, we uh, talk about all the different causes of dementia and things like Chrysophiliacob or HIV dementia would not be something that we see on a regular basis. Could you please shed some light on this? Ah, uh, yes. Everyone knows about Alzheimer's disease and there's a good reason for it. It is very common. It really does make up most of, I would imagine, what you see in a primary care practice. More than 50% of the cognitive disorders that primary care sees should be Alzheimer's-like. And so how do we capture that early? 
Well, the, the amnestic memory, meaning you can't remember and even with prompts, you can't recall it. Like basically your memory log is erased. So that's really typical of what we see in Alzheimer's. It's We call it amnesia or am- amnestic memory deficit. On vascular or multi-infarct dementia, there, you know, we have kind of both of them. Vascular dementia is really the umbrella. That should be probably make up, you know, maybe 25 to 30% of the practice because we see vascular dementia mixed in with Alzheimer's a lot. There's a lot of overlap. And so that, you know, that's where imaging can be quite helpful. Actually, all of imaging is helpful for, for Alzheimer's as well. It's just with the vascular dementia, we can the picture is somewhat better. In Alzheimer's, we might just see a little bit of atrophy, maybe, maybe not. And then with vascular dementia, we see the white matter in the brain, which means there's sclerosis and those microvascular networks that cause some of these cognitive changes. Sometimes we see a stroke or we see a lot of lacunar, small infarcts in the brain. And that's, again, under the, the really, it's primary care that is going to be addressing this. So it is, you know, getting that image can be very helpful. We tend to do MRIs with T2 weighted images. And the reason we do that is because we want to see that white matter that helps us understand what role the vasculature is playing in the cognitive presentation. So that's really the bulk of what I think primary care sees. Something that is a little more complex, but will definitely come into primary care too, and that is something that you mentioned, Dr. Yukesh, about the Parkinsonism. So Parkinson disorders include Lewy body dementia. Lewy body dementia is these Lewy body depositions in the brain. Parkinson's disease is a Lewy body deposition disorder too. So we'll see something where we see a little bit of slowness, stiffness, maybe a little bit of tremor. In Lewy body dementia, it presents a little bit differently. So there might be just a little bit of stiffness. We may not see tremor. But we see the cognitive changes, and the cognitive changes are very different. This is hard for us to pick up. It's going to be hard, even more difficult for primary care. But if you do that quick motor exam, it takes you like 10 seconds or 15 seconds. You look at their gait when they walk in. You look and see if that gait looks stiff. What's that arm swing like? You could just do a quick check for tone in one arm, the other arm, you're good. And then as you're interviewing them, you see if there's a little tremor. That's maybe suggestive of either some kind of underlying Parkinsonian disorder. For the dementias, we would be concerned about a Lewy body dementia if there are also changes in mentation. Again, it's tricky. That's why I might harp on it a little bit. And because they don't always present with a memory issue, there's more of like a confusion. They're, you know, a little bit like they're in a fugue state or like a little bit in a fog. That's kind of the sense that I get when I have one of these patients in the early. I've missed it many times myself. It's not easy to detect. There's not a whole lot we can do about it, but they have a lot of the behavioral issues. They have a lot of depression. They have the REM behavior disorder, which can occur, like I said, up to 12 years before the onset of these symptoms. It's really important to understand what that is because if they do have REM behavior disorder, then the likelihood of them developing a Parkinsonian disorder is about 90 to 95% over the course of the next 10 to 12 years. So what is REM behavior disorder? It's basically when they're acting out their dreams. Now that can sometimes happen if obstructive sleep apnea isn't treated well. You know, So that I would think about obstructive sleep apnea getting treated and see if those 
REM dreams go away, but they're acting out there. Maybe if they're kicking their bed partner, they're falling out of bed, waking up on the floor. Sometimes sleep, there's a little bit of sleepwalking, but mostly it's the kicking, thrashing. And so we care a lot about that. That's probably one of my pearls of wisdom for Lewy body dementia is having a clear picture of that. And then just a tiny percentage, maybe two or three times in your practice, you might see frontal lobe dementia. This is really much earlier onset. So that's in sometimes in the early 50s, there can be, and this is really where all those behavioral disturbances come in. Really, they primarily present with personality change, apathy, impulsivity, and some of these kinds of odd behaviors. They tend to be referred to psychiatry and that is okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Fad, for sharing all the information. That was the time that we had today for our conversation. Thank you, listeners, for listening to our podcast today. I hope all of you have a great day. Thank you to our expert faculty and to you, our listeners, for tuning into this episode. If you have any comments, questions, or ideas for future topics, please contact us at podcast at thebraintrust.com. For more episodes of The Brain Trust, please visit our website, thebraintrustproject.com. You'll find transcripts, speaker disclosures, instructions to claim CME credit, and other Alzheimer's resources as well. Subscribe to this podcast series on Healthcare Now Radio, Spotify, Apple, Google Play, or any major podcast platform. Thank you again, and we hope you tune into the next episode of The Brain Trust.